Luke chapter 16, verse 19, would you stand with me as we read God's word today? These are the words of Christ. <clears throat> there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, help us to understand the depth, the importance and the meaning of these words today for our own life and for those we know and love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This morning's message is entitled, What Happens the Moment I Die? What Happens the Moment I Die? Now notice what I did not say. It doesn't say what, what happens whenever I die or at some point after I die, but the moment I die. Now, as a pastor, we talk about what happens after we die and what our eternal destiny is, and I'll share with you a little bit about that in a few minutes. But this question specifically is one that I receive perhaps most often in ministry, particularly when, when I have church members lose their loved ones to death. And when they die at their funerals or before or after at some point, they want to know, they ask me, Pastor, where is my loved one right now? Even if they're confident their loved one is, in, is, is destined for heaven, they want to know the timing. And, and so this message today is a lot about timing. What, what happens to us right after we die? Interestingly enough, it's one of the most falsified, lied about, and confused subjects that we have in the realm of theology. What happens the moment I die? First, I want to share with you what not to believe. <laughs> Before we look at what the Bible teaches and what you should believe about the moment after you die or your loved ones die, I want you to know what you should not believe. Now, there are a lot of different theories about what happens when people die the moment that they die. There were many beliefs that, that were incorporated into the doctrines of the time in the first century. When Jesus said this, what the Jews believed about what happened the day, the very day that someone died, what the Greeks believed about it, what, what the Romans believed about it, what, what the Egyptians believed about it, and so on and so forth. They all had different theories about what happens to you right after you die. I think the three most common today are, first of all, annihilation. That's what the, the atheists and perhaps agnostics would say happens after you die. At the moment of death, they say we're just like the animals. Nothing happens after the moment of death because we have no spirit. There is no eternity. There is no afterlife. Just like a dog or a cat or any other kind of animal, we live, we, we die, and that's it. Annihilation. The second most uh, common, not the most common, but the seven, second of the, of the big three would be reincarnation. Now, I find this to be very appealing 
potentially, that we're reincarnated. We get another shot. You mess up this life, don't worry. You get another shot. Now, if you know Far Eastern theology very well, you'll know that there is a, a, some sort of karma involved here. And so if you, all, if you messed up this life, you may get another shot, but it may be as an earthworm <laughs> or, or something like that. Um, but that's the belief that everything is cyclical and we will just be recycled into a new body over and over and over again. And I think the theory is that eventually we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll get it right and we'll reach nirvana and we can end that cycle. That was what Buddha wanted to do was simply end the vicious cycle of reincarnation. And as you're reincarnated, you go through suffering in your life and difficulty in your life, and then you die and you're reincarnated again into more suffering and it just goes on and on and on. He sought to break that cycle. And then there's universalism. Universalism is by far, I think, the most popular belief in our culture, apart from Christianity. And it is the belief that people will, will be universally restored after they die. That is, and you've heard this before, all paths lead to heaven. You heard that term? So whatever you believe, have respect for, for whatever beliefs there are, whether it's Muslim or Buddhist or Baptist or Methodist or whatever out there, it's okay because we're all going to get there anyway. It doesn't matter what you believe, only that you believe it because all roads lead to heaven. The reason this is so popular is because there is no judgment in it. None of the universalists will say, well, all roads lead to heaven or hell. No, they just... There's no hell in this. It's just heaven. I like the ideal of that. Everybody wins. Everybody gets the prize. <clears throat> but for those who believe this, all you have to do is to say to them, so Hitler is in heaven? And there goes their theology. <clears throat> there are four biblical facts I want to share with you today about what happens the moment we die. First, you need to understand this. <clears throat> Four facts. Number one, everybody dies. Everybody dies. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Everybody dies. And we all know this, and then we're all shocked when death comes. Everybody dies. Everyone in this room, you, me, everyone you've ever met, everyone you've ever known, everyone you ever will know are, go are going to die. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, the writer of the Hebrews says it this way, just as man is destined to die once, after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Now you have the whole of the gospel really ripped at, wrapped up in this, this one passage, these two brief sentences. Just as man is destined to die once, so you are destined to die. You don't get to pick, you don't get a choice, you're going to die. And then it says this, and after that, to faced judgment. You see, the Bible teaches that there is a day of judgment, that you and I have to stand account before the great judge, that is God, before his throne, for the life that you and I have lived, for every good thing that we've done and said and thought, and every bad thing that we've done and said and thought. There is justice in this world because God is a just God. And the Bible says, because we sin and God knows all of our sins, he knows all of our wrong thoughts, all of our wrong words, all of our wrong deeds. 
that ultimately death is the punishment for that eternally, eternal separation from God. But then he says in the same sentence in verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Even though we all die, we're appointed to death, we're destined for death. And even though we all go to judgment, there is mercy from God in Jesus Christ. Everybody dies. I'll get back to that in just a moment. It is a favorite theme in Hollywood. And you know how much I love bashing Hollywood. <laughs> this ideal of cheating death. And I enjoy watching movies as well as you. The ideal of finding the fountain of youth so you never grow old and die. Or you build a time machine and go back when you're young. Or you find a magic potion or you draw power from Numarmu or whatever you do. But nope, unless you're Elijah, you are going to die. And no, you're not Elijah. If you remember, Elijah went to heaven on a, in a chariot of fire. He never actually saw death, but you and I will die. Number two, at the moment of death, our life on earth is over. At the moment of death, our life on earth is over. And you may be sitting there thinking, of course it's over. When you have to, let me tell you, we have trouble with that. I remember when I was in high school, it was my world. It was the only world that I knew. There was no other. I did not conceive of college or after college, of marriage, of children, of family, grandchildren, retirement, uh, uh, facing death. I, I did not conceive of any of that. That was another world. The only world I knew was high school. Now, it wasn't that great of a world for me. I was an introvert. I didn't have that many friends. I was in the band, and, uh, which the rest of the kids who had no friends, we all <laughs> grouped together in the band. We were the good kids. We considered ourselves the good kids. But we weren't the popular kids. We weren't the, the athletes, uh, the football players, the, the cheerleaders, on and on. Those who were well-known and well-loved in high school, and high school was their kingdom. It wasn't my kingdom at all, but it was my world. It was the only one that I knew. And then when I graduated from high school, there was no way anybody could help me grasp the reality that it was over. So I did what most high school kids do. Whenever I could, I went back as often as I could every weekend. I was in college and I would drive my motorcycle back to ground so that I could go to the high school football games and I would sit there right by the band kids in the band. Uh, as I would sit as close to them as I could in the next section and I would talk with them because most of them I knew, most of them were my friends, that was my world. And I was grasping onto that world as much as I could. But in a few short years, I'd go back and sit near the band and I'd look over and see fewer and fewer that I recognized. And then finally, nobody in the band knew who I was, even though it was my world. Do you remember that? Cherry and I went to a game this last week and we sat in the stands and there was a group of ladies sitting there in their 30s and they were just giggling and snickering and gossiping like a couple of, or not a couple, a bunch of junior high girls. And I looked over and I thought, they're just, they're still hanging on. <laughs> they looked like they were having the time of their life. They weren't paying any attention to the game, by the way. And uh, uh, they weren't paying attention to the band even. They were, they were reliving their high school gaze all over again. But I had to face that reality that it was over. 
Have you ever gone to a job and you quit? Said, I quit. And you don't realize that you're never going to see those people again. You're never going to go back. And you wake up a week later or a month later and you think, ah, you know, I miss work. I miss my friends. I'm, I miss what happened there, the good, the good things. But it's over. With the moment of our death, our life on this earth is over. You get one shot in this life, then it's over. All that you've accomplished, all that you've accumulated, all that you've experienced is over. No more Tex-Mex. No more Grand Canyon. No more social media or car payments or employment, taxes or troubles or victories. It's all over. There is finality to death. It's over. This life has ended forever for us. So everybody dies, and once you die, this life on earth is over. Number three, at the moment of death, our next life begins. At the moment of death, our next life begins. While this life is over, another life does begin. That is, there's no hanging around on earth. You don't get to haunt your house or scare your friends. It's over. Your next life will begin somewhere else. You may ask, well, what about an intermediate state such as purgatory or a temporary heaven or a temporary hell? There are many who believe that or a soul sleep that you're in a coma spiritually and you're waiting till that one day, the resurrection on the last day. That's what Mary and Martha believed when Jesus encountered them that we're just waiting all of these questions surrounding the timing of life after death, that is, what happens when and in what order. And I, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I can't give you a perfect timeline. I wish that I could. I mean, I could. Many preachers do. We're just guessing. <laughs> and I could give you my guess, and I'm sure it'd be just as good as anybody else's guess. But I do have a theory about it. And if my theory is wrong... All you got to do to know for sure is die, find out the truth, come back and let me know my theory's wrong, all right? I do want to look at our passage for today that I began with in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus shares this parable, and because he's a part of eternal God, I wonder if this parable actually happened or not. But he gives this parable, and he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Then the time came. Did you catch that word? Time. Then the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So you notice these guys, when they died, something happened. One went to heaven and one went to hell. One went to be at the side of Abraham and one went to torment. Do you remember the, excuse me, the rich man actually asked two questions. One was, would you send Lazarus down here to put a drop of water on my tongue? Because I'm in torment down here. 
Now, I would have asked for a large Chicken Express sweet tea. I, a drop, what is a drop gonna do? Uh, <laughs> but that's what he asked. It's odd that the rich man, still thinking he's the rich man, wants him to order Lazarus to come and assist him. But Lazarus is not in that position anymore, and the rich man is not in his position anymore. There's no poor man or rich man. There's no leper, leprous man or non-leprous man. There, that life is over. And what happens in this life, as far as those kinds of things, don't don't translate into the next life. You can't do enough good deeds in this life to fix things in the afterlife. And you can't undo or redo things in the afterlife. In fact, the guy said, do you remember? He said to God, this was the other question that he asked, will you at least let me go back so that I can warn my family? And the answer was no. When this life is over, it is over. Now you may ask this morning, as we think about our next life beginning, about near-death experiences. Online, they're called NDEs, near-death experiences. They shorten it to NDE. I will admit that I'm fascinated with near-death experiences. I've had congregation members tell me about themselves or family or loved ones that they've had that had a near-death experiences. They were on the operating table. They clinically died for a, a certain amount of time. They brought them back or they had a heart attack and they clinically were dead and they were brought back and they had an experience during that period of time. We call those near-death experiences. Maybe you have a testimony, something along those lines that, uh, that just get me excited about heaven when I hear them, usually. But I also want to give you a word of warning about near-death experiences. Near-death experiences have become extremely popular in our culture, not just with Christians, but with non-Christians alike. In fact, they're extremely popular with liberals who have no religious belief at all because it supports the ideal and describes the experience that somebody has that just overrides the Bible. I have watched or read numerous accounts of near-death experiences that are completely godless. That God is not in the picture, not even in heaven. They go to paradise, by the way. Everybody, everybody gets to go good to, to the good place, but God's not even there. They, they describe experiences where it's not only devoid of God, it's devoid of any accountability. Um, they're just completely secular near-death experiences, and they're blatantly false, which brings up a larger problem. Our culture believes that what we feel and what we experience is a greater authority than the Bible. So you have the Word of God written over the course of thousands of years, trusted and tried and true, and then you have somebody who has an experience and they say, I know the Bible says this, but let me tell you what, you know, I, I got the flu and I went to heaven and there's just, uh, you know, singing flowers and it's just zippity doo all day and there's no God, there's no judgment, there's no hell. And everybody goes, oh, oh, well, that, I don't have to do anything now. Immediately, they'll put that experience above the word of God. Don't. Do that. Be cautious of that when somebody has a near-death experience. Now, if you know of somebody that has a near-death experience or somebody comes to me, 
And they share with me an experience that they had when they were clinically dead. And that experience does not contradict the word of God. I can't tell you if it's true or not. I don't tell them you didn't have that experience. I don't ever say that, nor do I say, yep, you might as well put it in print. It's just like the Bible. I don't say that either. I don't know if you had the experience or, or not. I don't know if it was a dream. I don't know. I have no way to know. As long as it doesn't contradict scripture. But if your experience in any way at any point contradicts the word of God, I can tell you, you did not have that experience. It was just a dream. Does that make sense? The Bible has to be the standard, not just somebody's experience. Because a lot of these people have these amazing experiences, which get it even more amazing every time they tell it. Then they write a book and they make a lot of money on that experience that they had. So be careful about that. I know that uh, one lady died, for example, and she discovered life is just a simulation. This is on YouTube. She has a whole thing about life. This life isn't even real. It's just a simulation like the Matrix. She actually teaches that. Um, I, one guy, he said he died, and again, it was a completely secular near-death experience. He, he said it, there, was no, there was no God, there were no angels, but he did hear a voice occasionally saying, come this way or go over here. And then he got there, and this is very common. He had a, um, a review of his life, and he, saw, he said he, saw, he, was, he was permitted to see, and he was he empowered to see his whole life all the good things that he had done and all the bad things that he did. And when he saw all the bad things he had done in his life, he felt terrible. But after that, just went on into heaven. <laughs> you know, no judgment, no accountability. I, 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 get, I think he thought that was his accountability. He had to see those bad things and feel bad. Again, it's all feelings based. And then he got to go into heaven, a godless heaven, but a heaven nonetheless. Isn't that interesting? That's one of the most popular things. Also, I saw this a lot. And you go on YouTube, you can see hundreds and hundreds of, of videos about near-death experiences because all of them make YouTube videos now. And the I say one of the most popular is this, this tagline of, you've got it all wrong. Whatever you think about the afterlife, it's all wrong. I know the truth. I've been there. You're, you're wrong, but I can, I can tell you what it is like. Everything you've been taught about the afterlife is a lie. I've had an experience, and that experience overrides everything, including the Bible. Basically, they're saying, all that you've been taught here, just forget about that stuff. I had an experience. Now, there are some things that most near-death experiences do have in common. They have an out-of-body experience. In fact, you, you see this uh, statement they often say is they, they went through a tunnel and there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Have you heard that? You know how long that's been around? About a hundred years. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? This near-death experience. Now there have been near-death experiences for a long time, but nothing like what they are now. And so I, I Googled it and Google, which Google knows all, Google said that uh, near-death experiences first came around around the 1880s, and then it became super popular after uh, President Kennedy made a, a speech, a particular speech, during the Vietnam War. 
And he mentions this light at the end of the tunnel. And since then, everybody who has been dying has been seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. And we just assume it's timeless and it's always, no, about 100 years. Isn't that interesting? Funny how we are. So there are thousands of testimonies about seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but who, who can say? The, again, the problem is experiential theology or what I call existential doctrine that somebody's claims are risen above Scripture. So what does happen when we die? The moment you die, right after you die. Well, I've got good news for you today, if it, if, if, unless you're going to hell. It's bad news. But I have good news for you. If you're, if you're in Christ, whatever happens to you happens quickly. How do I know that? Well, I'll give you a few verses to give you an indication. The first is the story that we read. There's no indication that there was a soul sleep or a waiting period for Lazarus or the rich man. But if you look with me in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, this is Jesus on the cross. And when he's on the cross, he has a conversation briefly with the two men beside him, one on his left and one on his right. They were thieves or criminals. And one of them cursed him. And the other guy said, no, stop that because we're up here because we deserve to be. But this guy's done nothing wrong. And in a statement of faith, and we call this guy the first converted Christian, it says this in verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's really amazing. First of all, he doesn't say into the kingdom. He says your kingdom, which he's confessing that Jesus is a king. It's important to see. He wasn't a theologian. He didn't go to seminary. He wasn't one of the Pharisees. He's just some criminal. But he got it right. I want you to know today, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to memorize every word of the Bible. You don't have to study for years and years and years. The gospel is actually very simple. I won't say it's easy, but it is simple. Even the thief was able to get it right. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now notice what he said. He didn't say eventually or after the resurrection on the last day. He says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Now some people will say, well, this isn't talking about a real heaven or permanent heaven. It's just a temporary place until this happens or that. Listen to me. I don't care. I don't care. I know from this passage, I'm going to be with Jesus in paradise. Boom. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care if I'm a ghost or I'm in a body. I don't care. I'm with Jesus in paradise. Problem solved. We're not going to be loitering around going, when, when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? And I always share this when you, with you when I talk about the afterlife. And here's Lee's theory about the afterlife. And I know that if you've been here for a long time, you've heard this multiple times, but I'll share it again. You and I make assumptions about the afterlife based on this life, and we shouldn't do that. One of the laws of this universe, for example, is time and space. Every secular scientist, every atheist scientist or Christian scientist will tell you that time and space are interwoven, interconnected. I don't get that. I'm not a scientist. 
But they will tell you that time, linear time, when they talk about time, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is a part of the physical laws of this universe. But we assume that those laws apply to heaven as well, to the afterlife. I don't know where we get that assumption. I can tell you this, for God, he's not bound by linear time at all. He is what we call transcendent. That means he can go to yesterday, today, or tomorrow. He can go back and forth through time all he wants to. He is not bound by the laws of time. So I know there's at least something in this universe that's not bound by linear time, and that is God. Maybe if God is not bound by linear time, maybe there are other things in heaven that are not bound by linear time either. Maybe he gives us that ability. I don't know. But I do know this, one, and I always say this, when Paul talks about the resurrection on the last day, or excuse me, the second coming of Christ, it says he will descend to the clouds and the dead in Christ will rise first and those of us who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the air to be go to, to go to heaven with God forever. Now it says that, that the dead in Christ rise and, they and those who are still alive and are believers will be caught up with them. So one of the laws of the universe is the law of gravity. And the very first thing that happens when Jesus comes back is there goes the law of gravity. Because that song, I'll fly away, is doctrinally true. And so I don't know. But my theory is that while you and I are stuck on this linear timeline and we have to wait, we have to wait, we have to wait until the second coming of Jesus, until the resurrection of the dead, for them, it is not the case. For you and I, when we die, I have no reason to think that we're loitering or waiting for that for us, it's in an instant. Because Jesus says, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. I look forward to that, amen? So here's what we do know with certainty. We are all in God's hands, and I'll leave you with this. We are all in God's hands in the end. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, this is just a few minutes later after he has, has his conversation with the, other, or the criminal on the cross. It says this. It's the last thing that Jesus says in this world, so you, you should listen to it. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. When Stephen was stoned, the very first martyr in the New Testament, do you know what he said? He looked up and he said this, is, he said this to the people standing there with the stones, which made them really mad and they stoned him even faster. He said, I see God in heaven, in his glory. And then he says, I see at his right hand, Jesus. The last thing he saw and the last thing he said in this world is I see God and I see Jesus. And the last statement that he made just before he died from his stoning was, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He said basically the same thing as Jesus on the cross, except Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Stephen said, Jesus receive my spirit. What they were both saying is, we are in the hands of God. You are in the hands of God. I am in the hands of God. The only hope that we have are the hands of God. Anything else is a lie. Anything else is bogus. Anything else is a pipe dream. We are in the hands of God. Whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether we believe it or not, 
We are in the hands of God. The Bible says, however, heaven will not happen for everyone. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you have to acknowledge that the rich man was in, in hell. By the way, and I may have said this a while ago, that doesn't mean all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. What he was saying is all the good things that happened in the rich man's life didn't matter anymore and all the bad things that happened in the poor man's life, their economic status one way or another didn't help them. It was the grace of God. This brings us to the truth of John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in all the world, John 3, 16. And a lot of people don't know the next two verses right after that are just essential for understanding John 3, 16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, like the rich man, will not perish, but will have eternal life, like Lazarus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but listen to what it says, but whoever does not believe that is in Christ stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The Bible teaches because you and I are sin, we have already been judged. Our own sins have already condemned us. We are headed to judgment just like the rich man. But it is the grace of God through Jesus Christ that whoever calls on him will be saved. That means you have to surrender your life to Jesus. Not complicated, but not easy either. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to say, you know what? I've messed up. I've separated myself from my creator. And I believe Jesus died for me. He paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. And through him, I can be forgiven and saved. So everyone dies. At the moment of death, our life here on earth is over. At the moment of death, our new life begins. And always remember, we are all in God's hands. Pray with me. Father, as we look to the end of our life and beyond, Help us to acknowledge that we need a Savior. Because what happens in the next life is decided in this one. That's why you have us here. To make that choice, to accept that gift, to receive that salvation offered only through Christ. Help us to be able to sift through and sort through the junk that is taught today in our world, in our culture, all the lies that say it doesn't matter or that Christ doesn't matter, faith doesn't matter, that all paths lead to heaven. Oh, Father, help us to put faith in your word, your promises are absolute. As your word tells us that there is a book called the Lamb's Book of Life and the name of every person that has been redeemed by the Lamb, saved through Christ, their name is in that book. And if it's not in the book, we don't go to heaven. We have a different destiny, like the rich man. But Father, we know you love us. You don't want us to die in our sin. 
You don't want us to be separated from you. That's not why you created us. You want us to have victory, forgiveness, redemption, your word calls it. And that comes in Christ, through him alone and no other. As we're praying, no one's looking around. Just honestly, right now, just between you and your God, if you were to die today, because we don't know, if you were to die today, do you know where you'll go? Do you know your destiny for certain? Is your name in that book? If you're not certain, I encourage you to get that settled today. The most important decision you'll ever make needs to be made today. Don't put it off. Do you know Christ is your Savior? Have you given your life to Him? I challenge you to just come down and say, Pastor, here in this moment of invitation, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do this. Come down and say, Pastor, I want to be saved. I accept Christ. And I'll pray with you. and We'll talk with you and counsel with you. But you need to do that. Everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. There were no secret Christians in the first century. Jesus said it this way. As you're praying, listen to this. He said, if you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. It was a public profession of faith that Jesus requires. That's why we ask you to come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. It's free. It's a free gift. You don't have to sign a club or join a club or sign up for anything. You don't have to do all these work days or anything else. This, this salvation is free. But you do have to accept it. Will you do that today? No one's looking around. Would you stand? All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as you stand, as you pray, right now, you come.